Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray for your spirit to be with us this morning as we move forward in the next chapter of Leviticus. All of your words are God-breathed and profitable for us. And there are times when uh, your word hits us harder than at other times. And so we know that that is a work of your spirit. And I pray that, um, that your spirit will be active this morning as we, as we walk through this next section. <clears throat> I come to this knowing that I have uh, nothing to offer here. And that this is a time that you have ordained for us to see Jesus magnified, glorified, and um, and the point of our union and unity in the body of Christ. And um, I just pray that you would do what only you can do in spite of me, in spite of what may be said, um, that you would use what is said in this class to accomplish that purpose. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're in Leviticus 9. Remember that the whole issue here is the the setting up of the tent of meeting as the palace of the great king. God is covenant king over a covenant people. And he has come to dwell in the midst of the covenant people. So the tent is where the people bring their offerings and where they um, experience the fellowship and enjoy the covenant fellowship with the great king. And we saw in Leviticus 1-7 through how those offerings are to be brought. And we saw in Leviticus 8 who's to bring them and how they're to do it and what's involved there. And he's setting apart a people to minister to the great king. Uh, to, to make offerings to the great king on behalf of uh, and in ministry uh, to the people. Uh, Leviticus 9 records for us a highly significant event. It's the first of the formal offerings, the official offerings, in the tabernacle. This is where it begins. And so, um, there's a promise here in this chapter that the king will appear. So, this section involves what must be gathered before him, before he appears. And, uh, finally, it it ends with his appearing in acceptance of what has been done. So, let's look at Leviticus 9 and begin. Uh, We're actually going to do the entire chapter today, so uh, buckle up. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram 
for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horn of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar and they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece and the head and he burned them on the altar and he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one and he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule and he presented the grain offering took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he turned the fat pieces and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh, Aaron went for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the peace offering uh, and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. That's the end of the chapter. It's been seven days. Aaron and his sons have been camping in the courtyard, waiting for the time of ordination to be over. And on the eighth day, the first service ever conducted by the high priest begins. Aaron is lofty and exalted. He's got all his special clothes on. He's looking grand. And who's giving him orders? Who is Moses to Aaron? His little brother is giving him orders in front of everybody. That may be significant later. Tuck that away. <laughs> Here he is. This is the big day. Five times Moses tells Aaron what to do on his first ceremony as high priest. 
Like the previous chapter, we see in the first few verses kind of an outline of what's going to happen, what should happen. Um, what's going to happen? What's ultimately supposed to happen here? The first five verses, four verses. What's ultimately promised? What does it say? The Lord will appear. That's the promise. That's the hope. The presence of God being displayed for the people. Today the Lord will appear, will appear to you. What is that going to show when He does? What, is that, what does that say? That He's with them? Yes. That He approves of what's going on? Uh, his response is one of acceptance of them as His covenant people? What offering is Aaron to offer for himself and the priests? What offering? Sin offering and burnt offering. So two offerings for the priests. Some. Uh, what, what's what's the animal that he's offering here for the for the sin offering? Incidentally, but what kind of bull? A bull calf without blemish. Does that sound familiar? What does it remind you of? What's that? For the priests originally. For the priests originally, okay. A golden calf. And some commentators have found great irony in this. That Aaron's first offering is a bull calf. What does that tell you? <laughs> There's a sense of irony in the Bible. There's that. I don't know if that's the reason. It's certainly a, a very expensive offering. It's certainly a, a costly thing, and this is a kind of a special day. But there is that kind of thought. You're not going to forget this, right? This is again. You sacrifice this. It's him laying down sort of his idol. That that he, the approval of the people, the seeking the approval of the people is kind of an idea there. It's an ironic thing. For him to offer a bull calf. Um, in verse 5, how do the people respond to Moses' command? What do they do? What does it say? They obey immediately. They get the stuff. They draw near to the king's palace. And they do what? They stood. They gather stuff. They sit down and wait for the show. No. They stand. What's going on here is is royal language. It's court decorum. You stand before a king. You stand before a ruler, someone in authority, and that's what they're doing. This is their king. This is not this is not uh, dinner theater. This is standing, waiting for his approval. Standing, waiting for his judgment. This is a palace. This is a king. You see this in their and their very action. How they respond to what's going on. Um, so Aaron's first offering, it says, is a sin offering for himself. What does that tell you? A couple of things. What does that tell you? That he, that he needs it. Why would he need it? He's high priest. Little thing with little brother set aside. He's still got the stuff. He's got the clothes. He's, got the, he's been waiting in the courtyard for seven days to be made ritually holy. He's there. Why would he need a sin offering? Because he's still a sinner. 
And what does that tell the people? He's not above you. He still needs atonement. He still needs forgiveness. And he's been, this has been the theme again and again in this ordination. There's nothing special about Aaron. He's just been set apart by God to do a task. He still needs forgiveness. He still needs atonement. And you see it on his very first offering. The very first one is, I've got to be made right with God before I can work to make you right with God. Right? The other thing it tells us is that now he is a fully functioning priest. He's stepping into the office. That's the deal. He's The ordination is done. He can do this now. He is approved by God to make a sin offering first for himself and then for the people eventually. And it also includes his sons because they're collecting and serving the stuff with him. So there's that idea that it includes not just for himself but also the priesthood in general. Uh, then he offers a burnt offering. And remember, the sin offering is an offering of purification. Again, in my own sin, I need to be purified before God. The burnt offering is one of acceptance, seeking God's favor, you deserve worship, and atonement. Those are all the ideas wrapped up in the burnt offering. It's more of a generalized thing. Um, it's, a, it's a reconciliation between the Holy One and the One who is unholy. That's a, at its core. It's an atonement thing. And again, it makes crystal clear to all of Israel that the priests also need forgiveness, acceptance, and atonement as much as they do. All right. Two offerings for the priests. How many for the people? <clears throat> How many does he offer on behalf of the people? Just one sin offering. <clears throat> okay, he offers a sin offering. Four. Four. What are they? Okay, sin offering? There's fellowship offering? There's peace or fellowship offering? What else? There's a grain offering? And a burnt offering. So we have them in order, sin, burnt, grain, fellowship. Right? Kind of the order we discussed before. Purification, acceptance, sanctification, fellowship. Right? That same idea running through here. You see it here. The first two are offered in the same manner as they were for the priests. Different animals, a little less expensive animals. It's still the same kind of idea. It's a special day. They're, they're tasty morsels. Um, these are the first of what will be a perpetual offering known as the daily burnt offering. This is, this is where it begins. For the people, he offers this daily burnt offering. And they'll offer one again in the evening. And we've seen those commands already in Exodus 29. Here's, here it's being initiated. The third offering is a grain offering. Again, the offering, may this be sanctified, is the idea behind that offering. And some have made the point that, uh, that this grain offering would have been made in addition to the daily burnt offering, but we're not really told that here. Um, what's the final type of offering on behalf of the people? Peace. Do you see any difference in this peace offering than the one that we studied before? What's the difference here? How many animals? There's an ox and a ram. In a normal peace offering, it's just one animal, right? But why two? What do you think? It's an odd thing, isn't it? We're like augmenting the rules now. Doing more than what's required. It's a special day. 
It's a big deal. So more is offered as a, as a fellowship offering than would be normally required. It's a, an expensive thing. It's a greater sacrifice, uh, greater sacrifice here. And it's an appropriate offering to end the sacrifices that they've been doing because that's why they're here, to be His covenant people and to have Him and take Him as their covenant king. That's why, that's why they're there. All right, so these sacrifices get done. And we've gone through the details of these things, so you kind of remember. Um, if you haven't, you know, if you don't remember, I commend you to the previous chapters on that, on the, on the more detailed stuff. But we've seen, we've seen how this works. We've seen what he's doing. He makes all of these sacrifices. They're all on display right here on the very first day. And then he does something. What does he do? Right, that's part of the fellowship issue. Uh, the fellowship offering is that he does the waving of the of the two big pieces of meat that they get to keep as priests. That's their that's their part. What does he do after the fellowship offering is is finished? What does he do? He lifts up his hands and blesses the people. Then what? He comes down off the altar. He goes where? Into the tent. What does that tell you? Where had he been camping out? In the courtyard. Now he goes into the tent. What does that tell you? He's able to do it. He's accepted as high priest. He's stepped in. He can go into the tent on behalf of the people. He goes in there with Moses. We're not told what goes on in there. But he comes out alive, so that's a good thing. That's always a good day as a priest if you come out of the tent alive. That's We call that yay. That's a good day. Um, so he blesses the people again. He blesses them twice. What does he bless them? What does he say? Does it say? No, it doesn't say. We don't know what he says. But the idea is he comes in front of the people after having the sacrifices done. He lifts his hands and he blesses the people. We have no idea what he says. I would think that would need to be recorded. Kind of a big day, kind of a big deal. I didn't write it. Um, he blesses them. Some have argued, Jewish, the Jewish commentators have argued, that it was the blessing that, uh, <clears throat> that is recorded in number 6, 23-26, that really is a specific duty of a priest to do this. To bless the people. That's a priestly duty that, that they're given. And it says in, in number 6, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And, and some of the smart folks say that this is the benediction that Aaron spoke to the people here. We're not told. But note this. What Aaron says is a blessing. Who can fulfill that? Can Aaron? Always a good answer in Sunday school. You can count on that one. Uh, Aaron can't fulfill this blessing. He has no power in himself to do it. So what we call in a blessing here is actually a prayer. May the Lord bless you and keep you. If this is what he uses, and, and you know, maybe he did. May the Lord bless you and keep you. He's petitioning God for the people 
Again, the duty of a priest. He has no power in himself to do this. But he's asking, he's praying. He's, this is the posture of prayer in the, in the Old Testament. The lifting of the hands is a posture of prayer. Tim Hawkins has all these kind of different versions of this, but this is just the lifting, the normal lifting of the hands is prayer. The legitimate use of it. All right. So Aaron's blessing to the people is in effect a prayer for the people. Then he steps down for the altar. He signals that his ordination is complete and he can enter into the tent. Another reason for them entering the tent, we're not told what they're doing in there. Another reason may be that Moses is kind of passing the torch to Aaron or the, in effect the priesthood this mediation between God and the people. There may be some of that. Some of the, the priestly stuff is moving from Moses. Moses is no longer offering sacrifices. From here on, it's the priesthood that's offering sacrifices. So you have... Uh, anyway, regardless, they come out and they bless the people again and then what happens? They shout vulnerabilities. Why? Because the Lord comes and... Fire shoots out from the presence of the Lord and, and, and burns up the sacrifice. Now, we don't know what that looks like. We have imaginations that probably can, can ponder a little bit what that would be. Whatever it was, uh, everybody saw it and everybody fell down and worshipped and shouted. What does it mean they shouted? They shouted. This is like, ah, let's run. What's the shouting? What do you think? Cheering? I think that's what it is. The language that's used here is the language of a shout of great joy. He's accepted it. The promise of God's presence has been fulfilled. He's here. Shout for joy. Your king is here. And then what do they do? They worship. It's the natural response. The presence of God is there. He's accepted us. Worship. You have sacrifice. You have blessing. You have glory. You have joy in worship. You see it? The sacrifice. The blessing. The presence of God. Joy in worship. That's the pattern here. Turn to Luke 24. <clears throat> there are sometimes in preparing these kinds of little discussions with you on Sunday morning that I get blown away. I make no promise that I will be able to hold it together. So just embrace awkward. Luke 24. Do you remember what's going on here in Luke 24? What's happening? The resurrection has happened. It's kind of a big deal. Not every day that a man can raise himself from the dead. And he's done this. And he does this thing where he talks and meets with them for 40 days. Right? We know this from other places. Um, Jesus takes them out to Bethany knowing what's about to happen. He's going to go up to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, sit down. Study of Hebrews, that's where he is. He's sitting down. It's finished. But he stops in a place called Bethany with his disciples. 
He'd been to Bethany several times. I kind of wonder why he'd choose this location. It's all speculation. But I think he just kind of liked it. It's a place that he had visited several times. And, and um, I don't know. Just He's sitting there. He leads, he leads them out as far as Bethany. And what does he do? How? What does he do? He lifts up his hands and blesses them. Does that sound familiar? The posture of priest before his disciples, before he's about to ascend. The posture of priest and he blesses them. Not like Aaron. A little different, isn't it? Not like Aaron. What did he say? We have no idea what he said. How frustrating. I really would like to know what he said. I wonder if it was something like this. I bless you and you. I make my face shine upon you and give you peace. I wonder if that's what he said. Luke doesn't tell us, but it was more of a blessing than Aaron could give. It's not really a request to God, but a pronouncement from God. Christ our high priest. In fact, Christ blesses them as the great high priest and then He ascends as the great high king. His glory is revealed. Right? He blesses them as priest. He ascends as king and sits down. Verse 51 says, While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. The idea is an entourage came and takes him to his place, to his throne. He's carried up into heaven. How do they respond? In verse 52, they worshipped. And what else does it say? With great joy. Sacrifice, blessing, presence, worship and joy filled and yet continuing they worshipped him they returned to the place where formerly they had great sadness remember the guys from Emmaus you knew here didn't you know what happened in Jerusalem great sadness was on them all of them hiding in the room waiting for the authorities to take them and go crucify them because of being followers of Jesus great sadness they go to the place where there was great sadness now with great joy what made the difference what made the difference? What's great joy anyway? What is joy? What is that? Anybody want to hazard a definition? That's hard to define, isn't it? It's hard to define something that's emotional. That's why I don't like talking about it. Because I'm a Vulcan at heart. <laughs> it's hard to define something that's emotional. What's, let's first look at, um, well, 
But we see instances of it in, in Scripture. If we want to do a, a biblical definition, we see some instances of it. We see joy of deliverance. Hannah was filled with great joy because God gave her deliverance over her enemies because of her barrenness. There's the joy of salvation. All heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. But what is it? We know what it's not, right? It's the old Supreme Court definition. I know it. I see it kind of thing. We know what it's not. We know that it's not mind over matter. I choose to be in joy today. I choose joy. Well, no, you don't. You can't do that and sustain it. Can you? It's not mind over matter. It's a spontaneous, emotional overflow of the heart. I like what John Piper says about this. You can prepare for it, joy, like lifting your sail on a still ocean. But you cannot make the wind blow. The Spirit blows where He wills. And joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Biblical joy is not weak and fleeting, is it? Uh, unlike fleeting happiness and superficial pleasure, and I, and I want to make... Tammy and I were talking about this. We do that on occasion. Um, there's, there's a real tendency, I think, to, to separate happiness and joy. Oh, happiness is just this frou-frou thing and joy is deep and abiding. Like, there's a difference in happy and joy that makes you sour. Is joy sour? No. There is happiness in joy. There is pleasure in joy. But it's not fleeting. It's not temporary. Biblical joy is deep and abiding. And with it can be deep and abiding happiness and deep and abiding pleasure. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. That doesn't sound fleeting. At His right hand are pleasures for a minute, a couple of days, forevermore. That's not fleeting. But biblical joy seems to last and it seems to grow even in hard times. In fact, it's the hard stuff that, oddly enough, talk about irony, makes it grow. What's that all about? Biblical joy is not natural. It's of the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't rest in us. It's a fruit of, a result of, of the work of the Holy Spirit. Joy is the fruit of hope. It's a fruit of hope. What keeps us from great joy? What keeps us from rejoicing, shouting, and worshiping the great King? What keeps us from that? Not having the right beliefs. Ourselves. Ourselves? In what way? I think our perspective, a, a wrong perspective, a self-centered perspective. A self-centered perspective? Okay. Sin. <laughs> sin. Just say sin. 
It's if, if I were Joe Biden, I'd say it's a four-letter word, S-I-N. Um, anyway, sorry. I'm sorry, he's your vice president too, okay. What keeps us from great joy? Hope does not disappoint, Paul says in Romans 5. The ESV also translates that hope does not put us to shame. What do you mean it doesn't disappoint? It comes true. It wins in the end. It doesn't change. We do. We're the ones who get too burdened, who let something override the joy that we should have. How about this? I've hoped in finding a spouse for years, and either I'm still waiting or I found one, and this is not what I was hoping for. I've hoped in getting a job I like. I've hoped in finding true friendships. I've hoped to be accepted by my mother and father. I've hoped that the Astros will finally win the World Series. <laughs> There's a little bit of hope after yesterday's game, but still. What do you mean hope does not disappoint? I've hoped that my wife and kids stay healthy. What do you mean that hope does not disappoint? What do you mean that hope does not put us to shame? If I may take a little liberty with Paul, the focus or object of biblical hope does not disappoint. The focus or object of biblical hope does not put us to shame. <clears throat> do you remember... I'm going to go Lord of the Rings on this one. Do you remember uh, they're at the gate of Mount Doom... He's on the mountain, and Frodo's on the ground, can't move, and Sam says, think of the Shire. Do you remember, now's the time when the, this stuff comes, I can't remember the line, but stuff's in harvest now, and the beauty of this, he says, I can't see it. I'm in the dark, Sam. I'm alone. He can't see it, and he shouldn't. My gosh, he's in Mordor. He's surrounded by rocks that cut your feet, even hobbit feet. And he's surrounded by great danger and the eye is sitting there doing its weird freaky thing on top of the mountain and it's all there and he why of course he wouldn't see it but he goes even further i'm alone is he alone no i'm in the dark is he in the dark no there's some freaky light going on at the top there i mean there's some light they can see he's despairing he can't see why his hope is in the ring Right? It's a false hope. What happens after the little trip inside the mountain and Gollum meets a fiery end and they... I'm sorry for spoiling this for you. He gets on the rock in the middle of lava coming off of an exploding mountain and <laughs> Sam says, I'll never, I'll never see this or I'll never... And he says, I can see it, Sam. Right? I can taste bread. I can see the sky. I can taste strawberries. What's the difference? No, we can't. He's sitting on a rock surrounded by lava, missing a finger. What's the difference? It's gone. It's over. The veil has been torn away. And even though everything around him, 
screams, you're doomed. He can see it. Great cost, yes. But what a reward. He can see it. He can see what is good and right and true in spite of what everything around him screams. It's most definitely not in the Shire. But he can see it. The ring is gone. The veil to what is good, right and true has been lifted. The suffering that he went through is the stripping away of the influence of the ring. Now, obviously, Tolkien's not Scripture. But underlying every great story is the greatest story. We take our eyes off of Him. We prize something or someone other than Christ ascending in His glory, our conquering King who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us. I told you. Awkward. Embrace it. Who ascended for us, who intercedes for us, who sent His Spirit to us, who is preparing a place for us, who is coming for us, that where He is, we may be also. That's hope. Hope does not disappoint. What keeps us from great joy? Lesser dreams. Lesser pleasures. Lesser gods. Lesser hopes. They always disappoint. They always put us to shame. But not this dream. Not this pleasure. Not this God. Not this hope. The people shouted in great joy and worship because God's presence was shown to be with them. The disciples worshipped and went to Jerusalem with great joy because God's presence was shown to be with them forever. Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. We are to rejoice in suffering. What does Paul say here? Romans 5.3 Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Normally that would get you sent to the psychiatrist. We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Suffering makes real to me what is the right object of hope. It strips away the veil, the stuff that clouds Reality. That's what it's for. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. It's a witness of what God has done for us in Christ. His love, His favor, His atonement, His acceptance. The great hope that we have in the great King is made real to us because He has given us His Spirit. Hope does not put us to shame. We're to rejoice even in suffering because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's easier said than done. Yes? Everybody has a situation Everybody's in a place 
where your circumstances may be, I'm in the dark here and all alone. Right? Now, sometimes we look at other people's situation and go, oh, that's not that bad. You should see mine. But we're all there at some point. We're either encouraging somebody who's there or we're there ourselves. I mean, that's really the way life works. Stuff goes on. But hope does not disappoint. Um, I go back to we can make ourselves ready to receive hope, but it's a work of the Holy Spirit. How do we make ourselves ready? Means of grace, which are? Read the Word, pray, go to church, memorize Scripture, Salvation is the root of it. Right? The stalk of it, the tree of hope, that yields hope, is the Word. We stand on His promises. We read His promises. We understand what He means. Try to understand more and more what He means. See Jesus lifted and glorified. Always have Him before us. The fruit of it is hope. And hope produces joy. Not necessarily a joy without tears. But it is a joy. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing is not ironic for the Christian. Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with what? Great joy. Exceeding joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore, He says. What keeps you from great joy? What's on your finger? <laughs> Cut it off. Any questions? All right, I'll pray. Father, not everything that we find joy in is necessarily evil but it can certainly become so. The good gifts that you give us, we have um, a tendency to make idols out of them. Father, would you want again do what you on, only you can do by your Spirit to reveal and shine light on the heart that we would see where our hope lies. We want to know great joy and worship you in reality, in spirit and in truth. We thank you for this great gift that you've given us. And our King, who commands, rules, and protects us. And the priest who intercedes for us and the prophet who tells us and instructs us and encourages us with the great hope you've given us in Christ. I pray that you make it so 
not just in our heads, but in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.